بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh we gather for the third and final part of my commentary on the hadith of Jibril alayhi salam as related by Imam Muslim in his Sahih which happens to be his very first hadith in his book just to repeat the hadith from Sahih Muslim I relate with an uninterrupted and continuous chain from me to Imam Muslim rahimahullah وبالسند المتصل مني الى الامام المسلم رحمه الله روى عن عمر بن الخطاب عن عمر بن الخطاب رضي الله عنه قال بينما نحن عند رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ذات يوم اطلع علينا رجل شديد بياض الثياب شديد السواد الشعر لا يرى عليه اثر السفر ولا يعرفه منا احد حتى جلس الى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فاسند ركبتيه الى ركبتيه ووضع كفيه على فخذيه وقال يا محمد اخبرني عن الاسلام فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الاسلام ان تشهد ان لا اله الا الله وان محمد رسول الله وتقيم الصلاه وتؤتي الزكاه وتصوم رمضان وتحج البيت ان استطعت اليه سبيلا قال صدق قال فعجبنا له يساله ويصدقه قال فاخبرني عن الايمان قال ان تؤمن بالله وملائكته وكتبه ورسله واليوم الاخر وتؤمن بالقدر خيره وشره قال صدقت قال فاخبرني عن الاحسان قال ان تعبد الله كانك تراه فان لم تكن تراه فانه يراك قال فاخبرني عن الساعه قال من مسؤول عنها باعلم من السائل قال فاخبرني عن امارتها قال ان تلد الامه ربتها وان ترى الحفاه العرات العاره عاده رعاء الشاء يتطاولون في البنيان قال ثم انطلق فلبثت مليا ثم قال لي يا عمر اتدري من السائل قلت الله ورسوله اعلم قال فانه جبريل اتاكم يعلمكم دينكم او كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم that's the hadith from sahih muslim imam muslim rahimahullah relates a hadith from umar ibn khattab radiyallahu anhu says that whilst we were seated with the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam one day when 
a man appeared wearing very white clothes, extremely white clothes, of extremely black hair. There was no sign of journeying on him, and nor did any of us recognize him. So he came and he sat down before the Messenger وسلم, and attached his knees to the knees of the Messenger. He then placed his hands on his thighs. Then he said, O oh Muhammad, inform me or tell me about Islam. So the Prophet وسلم, said, Islam is that you testify that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah and that you establish salah, you give zakah, that you fast the month of Ramadan and that you perform the pilgrimage of the house if you are able to find a path to it. So the man said, you have spoken correctly or the truth. So Umar radiallahu says that we marveled at him, that he asks the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then ratifies the answer of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the man then said, tell me about Iman. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said that you believe in Allah and his angels, and his books, and his messengers, and in the final day, and that you believe in Qadr, both its good and its bad. So the man said, you spoken correctly. He then said, tell me about Ihsan. So the Prophet wasallam said, that you wor- Ihsan is that you worship Allah. As though you see him. And if you do not see him, then indeed he sees you. The man then said, Tell me about the final hour. So the Prophet said that the one who is being questioned has no more knowledge of it than the questioner himself. So the man said, tell me about its sign. So the Prophet ﷺ said, that you will see the maid giving birth to her master. And that you will see barefooted, unclothed, poor, shepherds, herders of flocks, competing with each other in buildings. Then Umar said that the man left and I waited for a while. Then the Prophet said to me, Oh Umar, do you know who the questioner was? So I said, Allah and his messenger know best. So the Prophet said, indeed, he was Jibreel who came to teach you your religion. Now I've commented on almost two-thirds of the hadith, or most of the hadith in the past two weeks. And the sentence where we ended was where the Prophet in response to the question, what is Iman? 
replied by saying that you believe in Allah and in the final in in the angels and in the books in his books and his messengers and in the final day and that you believe in qadr in fates pre, predestiny both it's good and it's bad so the man said you've spoken the truth you've spoken correctly this is where we left off then as we've learned in other narrations of this hadith, because the Arabic and the translation that I've just given you is the wording of Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi his sahih. But the same hadith has been narrated by other authors, and there are variations. Not variations, but additional wording. And therefore we learn that Umar, sorry, Jibreel, alayhi salam, when he said that when he, when he asked about Iman and the Prophet ﷺ gave him the reply, one further thing he said was, so if I believe in these things, have I believed? Am I a mu'min? So the Prophet ﷺ said, yes. So the Jibreel said, yes, you've spoken the truth, you've spoken correctly. Again, the Sahaba found this to be very strange to the extent of saying to each other that we've never seen a person like him. This is, he asks the Prophet ﷺ and then ratifies and attests to the answer of the Messenger as though he knows more than the Messenger and as though he is actually teaching the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. Then, after having questioned him about Islam and Iman, the Prophet ﷺ was questioned by Jibreel with the words, فَأَخْبِرْنِي عَنِ الْإِحْسَانِ So tell me about Ihsan. Now before I continue with this, allow me to explain something about Islam and Iman, which I haven't explained yet. Which is that these two words, Islam and Iman, and their derivatives, such as Muslim and Mu'min, or Muslimun and Mu'minun, as a plural. These words are often interchangeably used. So when we say Muslim, we mean, we mean Mu'min. When we say Mu'min, Mu'min, we mean Muslim. When we say Islam, we mean Iman, and vice versa. So is it correct to interchangeably use these words, and are they synonymous? Islam and Iman, Muslim and Mu'min, Mu'mins and Muslims, and all the other derivatives of Islam and Iman. The simple answer is that in common usage, yes, they are synonymous and they can be interchangeably used. <coughs> However, in reality, and technically speaking, and when you make a very close study of both words and their true and correct meanings, there is actually there are actually some subtle differences between Islam and Iman. And this is very clear, this is very evident, when the two words are used together. So if someone uses the word Islam in isolation, we normally 
take the word to refer to both Islam and Iman. If someone uses the word Iman in isolation, again, we take the word to refer to both Islam and Iman. But if ever the two words are used together, then it shouldn't simply be regarded as mere repetition. But there is a subtle difference between the two. And this is clear in the Qur'an and in the Hadith. So, and what is the difference? The difference is simply as the Prophet ﷺ himself explained. Jibreel ﷺ, who knew what the answers were, and who knew what the, who actually knew what the answers were to his questions. The first question he asked in this narration of Sahih Muslim, is what? Tell me about Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ explained the Islam to him. He then said, tell me about Iman. And both answers reflect something which is very clear. That Islam is outward religion. Being, Islam being submission simply means to submit externally, apparently. And then Iman is a grade higher than Islam. It reflects true belief in the heart. And it's to do with one's very inner being. It doesn't just refer to apparent outward submission. Islam is easier than Iman. True belief, true Iman, in all its varying degrees, is much harder than simply performing apparent rituals and acts of worship. And this is very evident from a verse of Surah Al-Hujarat in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about some Bedouin who came, uh, who claimed to be mu'mineen, to have iman, to have faith. So Allah quotes them, saying قَالَتِ الْأَعْرَابُ آمَنَّا قُلْ لَمْ تُؤْمِنُوا وَلَكِنْ قُولُوا أَسْلَمْنَا وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ The Bedouin said, Amanna, we have believed. Now, in, in English as well, when we use the word faith and belief, again, they are synonymous and interchangeable. But... Let's concentrate not on the English translation, but the actual wording of the Arabic. So the Bedouin said, Amanna, we have believed in that we have Iman. So Allah said, say to them, O Messenger of Allah, قُلْ لَمْ تُؤْمِنُوا You have not believed, you have not embraced Iman. وَلَكِنْ قُولُوا rather say, أَسْلَمْنَا we have embraced Islam, we have submitted. Has not yet entered your hearts. Now, these Bedouin weren't hypocrites. Because Allah immediately thereafter says, That if you obey Allah and His Messenger, Allah will not reduce, Allah will not detract or deprive you 
of any of your deeds. So what these verses show is that these Bedouin were simply newcomers to Islam who made a sudden claim about being mu'min and having iman, a grade higher than Islam, which is apparent submission. So Allah corrected them. That you ha- yes, you have submitted. You are Muslim. You have embraced Islam apparently. But Allah categorically says that iman has not yet entered your hearts. So the iman that Allah is denying as having, not, as having entered their hearts, that iman isn't about simple Islam or simple faith or the articles of faith without which they wouldn't be considered Muslim or believers anyway. But the iman which Allah is denying as having entered their hearts is that higher grade of iman which is deep and profound belief which only comes later. So these verses clearly show that one's journey in Islam, in faith, in religion, begins with apparent outward submission. And that outward submission, hopefully and eventually, will lead to a reflection of deep, profound inner faith. And that inner faith is a grade much higher than apparent submission. This is why every Muslim is not necessarily a mu'min. Even the hypocrites were apparently Muslim. They would come to the masjid of the Messenger they would pray salah in congregation. They spoke religion. They sat in the company of the Messenger They hovered around him at times. They participated in his gatherings, they listened to his words, they frequented the masjid, they prayed their salah, they spoke in religious terms, they repeatedly mentioned the name of Allah and his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa of course all for public consumption, but this is what apparent external Islam and submission was. Yet their hearts were not just devoid of faith, but averse to faith. And imagine that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of the Bedouin who actually saw the Prophet who embraced Islam but who were newcomers and very weak in their faith. Allah actually says of them, you have become Muslim and submitted apparently but iman has not yet entered your iman has not yet entered your heart. So, in contrast to the Bedouin at the blessed time of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, if Allah denies that iman, true iman has yet to, uh, has not uh, has entered their hearts, and says it has not yet entered your hearts. Imagine what our position must be. Deprived of the blessings of the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, distant from him, from his time, deprived of good company. How could we even begin to compare with those Bedouin? 
And yet Allah says of them, you have submitted apparently, and apparently you are Muslim. But Iman has not yet entered your heart. So Islam is relatively simple. Relatively. I'm not saying it is simple. But for a person to embrace Islam, to be born a Muslim and then begin observing religion, practicing religion, apparent Islam is relatively simple. To pray, to fast, to give in charity, to frequent the masjid. The Bedouin did it, the hypocrites did it at the time of the Prophet And yet Allah denied Iman having entered their hearts and restricted their faith to apparent submission and apparent Islam. So Islam is relatively easy compared to true Iman. And it's a grade much higher. One has to really climb the ladder, really perfect their external submission, their external Islam, for their inner Iman to be true. And external Islam has a huge impact on one's inner Iman. The way in which we pray Salah, the way in which we perform our wudu. External purity reflects on internal purity. External submission reflects on inner submission. This is why Salah should be performed with khushu and khudu. Khushu' means the humility and the submission of one's external limbs. Khudu' means the humility and the submission of one's heart and mind. Inner submission. So true salah consists of both. External submission, inner submission. External humility, inner humility. This is why when we stand before Allah, first of all, even before salah, when we perform wudu, our wudu should be complete, good. For external purity leads to inner purity. We may not understand it, but we've heard repeatedly, as I've explained, from different hadith. That famous hadith of Nasai, in which the Prophet is related that the Prophet prayed Fajr Salah. And he was experiencing difficulty in his qira'ah, in his tilawah, in Fajr Salah. In fajr salah. After Salah, he said, turned around and said, what is it with me? Why is it that I, mali unaza'ul Qur'an? Why is it that I'm struggling with the Qur'an? Even though he was a messenger of Allah. And then he gave the reason. He said, some of you do not complete and make good and perfect your wudu when you come. Therefore, whenever you come to Salah, make sure that you perfect and make good your wudu. Imagine, someone's lack of perfection in their wudu had not just an impact on their inner, on themselves, but it actually had an impact on the Salah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's why he couldn't, he was struggling with the Qur'an. So, our lack of external purity doesn't just impact on our own inner purity, it actually impacts on other people. We may not understand it today. There may come a time when we will begin to understand it. So, 
external purity leads to inner purity. External submission in salah leads to inner submission in humility. We should be mindful of how we do wudu, how we pray. And just like we learned previously, that in one of the answers given by Rasulullah along with the verbal testimony of Allah and his messenger being God and being the messenger respectively, and along with the establishing of salah and giving of zakah and the fasting in the month of Ramadan and Hajj, the Prophet in one narration also mentions three other things, which are, what's Islam? That you perform the Umrah and that you do ghusl of janabah, of major impurity, and that you make good and complete your wudu. So making good your wudu, making complete your ghusl, and observing and being mindful of external purity is actually part of Islam. This in itself will lead to inner iman. This is why one of the virtues is to remain in a constant state of wudu. Even if a person doesn't have to pray salah, to remain in a constant state of wudu. Bilal used to frequently do wudu, and every time he did wudu, what would he do? He used to pray two raka'at, salah. After wudu, this is known as tahiyyatul wudu, or referred to by some ulama. What did this lead him to achieving? Prophet said to him, O Bilal, what do you do that I hear your footsteps in Jannah? And this is the thing which he pointed out. So, remaining constantly in a state of wudu is a noble thing. External purity leads to inner purity. External submission leads to inner submission. And until we do not make good, complete and perfect our external acts of purity, of prayer, of pilgrimage, of charity, of fasting, these things will not lead to inner realities. Every act of worship should ultimately lead to something. Allah says, in the Prayer, meaning salah, leads to. Salah prevents. Fahsha, immorality, lewdness, and sin. Now we should question ourselves. We pray five times a day. And we've been doing it for years. If our salah does not lead us, or does not prevent immorality, indecency, and sin in our own character and lives, then is the salah achieving its purpose? Is it fulfilling its objective? It's, is, is it doing its role? If not, then why? Allah says about fasting, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصِّيَامُ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ we give many reasons for fasting that it creates sympathy, it creates awareness, awareness, it makes us sympathize with those who are less fortunate, it makes us experience hunger, creates discipline, all sorts. Allah in the Quran only mentions one reason for fasting, which is that it creates taqwa. 
And taqwa means God-wariness, the awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, awareness of Allah, consciousness of Allah. Now we've been fasting every day for the whole month of Ramadan for years. And strange though it may seem, it's a known fact that even those who don't normally pray salah, they still fast in the month of Ramadan. Some of them to the degree of actually fasting even in the month but not praying. So they'll fast throughout the day, but they won't pray. And we've seen that. So people are mindful of the fast. So, so many of us fast every day of Ramadan. We've been doing it for years, even decades. And yet we should question ourselves, has this external observance of the fast created inner taqwa? Has it? If it hasn't, why isn't our fast fulfilling its role? Zakah, we give zakah once a year. It's supposed to, Allah says about zakah, خُذْ مِنْ أَمْوَالِهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُطَهِرُهُمْ That, O Messenger of Allah, take from them, from their wealth, such sadaqah, such charity, تُطَهِرُهُمْ وَتُزَكِّيهِمْ بِهَا Which purifies them, and through which you purify them, through which you nurture them. We should ask ourselves, We give zakah, we give charity. Charity isn't just meant to purify our wealth. It's supposed to purify us, our minds, our characters, our hearts. Now, again, we give zakah, we give sadaqah, we give in charity. Has that distribution of charity, that donation, of all these years, has it ever not just purified our wealth, but purified our inner character and purified our hearts. Has it? If it hasn't, if our charity does not lead to purification, then we should question ourselves. What is it about my charity that it's not fulfilling its role? So all these external acts of worship are supposed to lead to something, an inner reality. And if they don't, we should be questioning our observance, our method, our manner of doing these things. If they are done properly, they will lead to an inner reality. They will actually lead to a transformation of one's character. So Islam is relatively easy. Apparent salah is relatively easy. Giving zakah zakah is relatively easy. Fasting is relatively easy. Relative in the sense that the apparent act is easy, but doing it in such a way that it leads to an inner reality is much, much harder. And that's what we should be aiming for. In fact, we should be fearful. Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim and others all relate a hadith from Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas who says, that once the Prophet ﷺ distributed some wealth and he gave to some but he never gave to others and one of the people who he didn't give was someone who was very dear to me in fact of all these people who was the dearest to me 
So this concerned me, so I went to the Prophet and I whispered to him. And I said to him, O Messenger of Allah, you gave others, but you didn't give him. By Allah, I see him as a mu'min. I see him as a mu'min. So all the Prophet ﷺ said in reply was, O a Muslim, say a Muslim. Not a mu'min, but a Muslim. So Sa'ad fell silent. Then he says, what I felt about this individual being deprived of the gift of Rasulullah ﷺ, what it may mean that he didn't give to him. What, what are its implications? So this overwhelmed me. So I again spoke to the Prophet ﷺ. And I said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, you didn't give to him. By Allah, I see him as a mu'min. So the Prophet ﷺ said, as a Muslim. Say Muslim, not mu'min. So I fell silent. And then after a short while, again, I was overwhelmed by my concern and my feelings about him. So for the third time I said to the Messenger of Allah, Messenger of Allah, you gave others but you deprived him. By Allah, I see him as a mu'min. So the Prophet said, Our Muslim, say a Muslim rather than a mu'min. Why was the Prophet drawing a distinction? Because what he was teaching Sa'ad is that you can't judge a person's inner faith. You can only say about them what you know. That apparently he is a Muslim. What his heart contains and his level of Iman. That you cannot judge. And therefore you shouldn't testify to it. So the Prophet ﷺ then said, O Sa'ad, after three times, I said to him, O oh, Sa'ad, at times, I give to others, and I deny others, even though they are more beloved to me. But I give to others, simply out of the fear that if I do not give to them, Allah may fling them flat-faced into the fire. What this means is that at that time, there were some individuals who had just embraced Islam, who were absolute newcomers, and they were not in the same position as the other Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum. And it is highly possible and the Prophet ﷺ was a brilliant judge of character. The Prophet ﷺ feared. He didn't know for certain, even though he was a messenger of Allah, he didn't know for certain. But he feared that if I do not win over their hearts, and if I do not endear them to me and draw them near, I may lose them. 
And therefore, in order to appease them, to placate them, to win over their hearts, in order to soften their hearts, in order to endear them to him, the Prophet ﷺ showered favours and blessings on them, just to win over their hearts. Because he feared that if I don't do this, there's a danger that they may become disillusioned. And this happened, there was some Bedouin who came to Medina, embraced Islam, and then left. And they would go back to their people, and they would wait for some good fortune. And then after some time, they would say, they would feel that, look, I've embraced Islam, but I'm not seeing any new wealth. I'm not, we're not seeing any rain. We're not seeing a growth or an increase in our crops or in our livestock. So this isn't a good religion. And that's what Allah refers to when he says, That they are of the people, those who are on the edge. They worship Allah on the edge. So if good fortune meets him, he is content with it. But if any calamity or suffering befalls him, he flips on his face. Thus he loses the world and he loses the akhirah. The afterlife. This is the clear loss. So there were certain Bedouin and there were also certain tribal leaders who felt entitled to privileges and special wealth from Rasulullah. So the Prophet said to Sa'ad, Oh Sa'ad, sometimes I give people and I deny others. Even though the ones I deprive and deny, they are more dearer and beloved to me than others. But I give the others out of fear that if I don't, Allah may, fling, Allah may fling them flat on their faces in the fire of Jahannam. And this is actually explained further by another hadith which gives this hadith of Sa'ad radiallahu an context. And the other hadith is related from Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu an. Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu an relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to me, O oh Abu Dhar, what do you have to say about Ju'ayl? And who was Ju'ayl? Ju'ayl radiyallahu anhu was that same man that Sa'd radiyallahu anhu is referring to. The one who wasn't given by the Messenger of Allah. And the one that he saw as a mu'min and not simply as a Muslim. So Abu Dhar radiyallahu anhu was asked by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, O Abu Dhar, what do you think of Ju'ayl? And he was a muhajir. So Abu Dhar said, like the rest of his people, meaning he is a muhajir like the rest of the muhajirun. They are noble people. So the Prophet then said, and what do you think of such and such a person? He was the one that the Prophet gave wealth. So Abu Dhar said that, he is one of the leaders of his people. He didn't say any more. He said he's one of the leaders of his people. So the Prophet ﷺ then said to Abu Dhar, Well, no, that a world full, that Ju'ayl is better 
than a world full of the likes of him. Ju'ail is better than a world full of the likes of him. So Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, if that is what you think of him, meaning the leader of the people, if that is what you think of him, then you still do what you do with him, meaning you give him so much wealth, and yet you deprive Ju'ail. So the Prophet wasallam said, I am merely trying to win over his heart. So imagine, this was Ju'ail radiallahu anhu, of whom the Prophet ﷺ testified that he is better than a world full of that particular leader that he gave wealth. And yet the Prophet ﷺ didn't give him any wealth. Two things we learn from him. We learn so much more, but let me explain two things. One, indeed, wealth is no evidence of nobility. The fact that Allah, this is why when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَنْ عَمِلَ صَالِحٍ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ فَلَنُحْيِيَنَّهُ حَيَاةٌ طَيِّبَةٌ Whoever does good, man or woman, whilst they are believers, then surely we shall give them a beautiful life, a good life. A good life does not mean the comforts of the world. It doesn't mean wealth. Allah does not give wealth necessarily, to those who do good deeds. In fact, Allah says in the Qur'an, Allah says, to each, and who is he referring to? Prior to this, Allah explains in the surah, in the verses preceding, that there are those who work for this worldly life and there are those who work for the hereafter. But Allah says to each, i.e. the worldly people and the world, those people whose gaze is on the afterlife, to each we give. We give wealth. We give goods. We give of the bounty of your Lord. To these, to the pious, to the sinful, to the good, to the evil, to the worldly, to the holy. To each we give of the bounty of your Lord. And your, the bounty of your Lord is not restricted from anyone. See how we give preference and privilege to some over others. But the afterlife is far greater in grades and it's far better in virtue. So wealth is no sign of nobility. The fact that someone has wealth is no sign of acceptance in the sight of Allah. Allah gives to anyone. Allah deprives those whom he wills. And that's exactly what the Prophet ﷺ did. In fact, he did the very opposite, which is he would give wealth to those who weren't so dear to him. And he would, he would actually withhold wealth from those who were the most beloved and dearest to him. Because he wanted for them what he wanted for himself. Which was simplicity, unworldliness, asceticism, and devotion to the hereafter. So just as he denied himself, he denied those who were closest and dearest to him. Those who weren't so close, those who weren't so dear, those who he feared would flip, would turn away. Those who felt were vulnerable in faith, 
Those the Prophet showered with gifts and blessings. It's a great lesson in that. The other lesson is that subhanAllah, this is what the Prophet thought of Ju'ayl radiallahu an. And yet he says to Sa'ad radiallahu an and emphasizes to him that don't say of him that he was a, he is a mu'min, just say he is a Muslim. Allahu He says Ju'ayl is a world, is better than a world full of the other person. And yet he says to Sa'ad radiallahu an, don't say mu'min, say Muslim. Don't say mu'min, say Muslim. Don't say mu'min, say Muslim three times. I don't testify to iman in his heart. You have no way of doing that. You can only judge by what's apparent, which is apparently he's a Muslim. And this was something very common in the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu an. A man, he was the uncle of, Umar ibn of Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma, and the brother-in-law of Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhu. So Uthman ibn Mud'un radiyallahu anhu, when he passed away, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went to visit him. What did he do? He actually stood over him, bent over, kissed his forehead, and began weeping. And because of the weeping of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the others wept. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam testified that he left this world without the world having touched him and him having touched the world. That he did not touch the world and the world did not touch him. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam buried him. When he buried him, he asked for a rock. And then he, with the rock, he marked his grave. And he, said, he marked his grave actually saying that when members of my family shall pass away, I shall bury them next to Uthman. That's who Uthman ibn Mud'un was in the view of Rasulullah So when he was standing there, he was weeping, the Sahaba weeping because of him. He had bent over, kissed him on his forehead. The... Uthman ibn Mud'un an sister spoke up from behind and she said, I testify that you are in Jannah. So the Prophet scolded her and said to her, and what do you know that he is in Jannah? So the Prophet would not allow him, anyone to testify about someone being a member of Jannah, a person of Jannah, or someone's inner state. In fact, he would warn them, he would refute them, just as he did here. And that was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we should take a lesson from that. We should fear for ourselves. And when it comes to others, we should also be mindful of not lavishing undue praise, of testifying their, to their inner state, or of swearing in the name of Allah that they are mu'min from within that they are extremely pious from within. That we do not know. If the Prophet ﷺ didn't allow the Sahaba عنهم, to do that, for the Sahaba عنهم, then who are we to do it for our contemporaries, the people of today? Much more can be said on this, that there is a clear difference between Islam, well, there are differences between Islam and Iman when they are used in this context, and both Allah and His Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa have drawn that distinction. But I'll move on from here. 
So the third thing was, Jibreel alayhi salam said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, tell me about Ihsan. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though you see him. And if you do not see him, then he sees you. This is a third grade. This is much higher than Iman. There is Islam, then Iman, then Ihsan. Now what's Ihsan? Literally, Ihsan just means to do good. And this word is used throughout the Qur'an, Ahsanu, Ahsanu, Muhsin, Muhsineen, which is those who do good, those who have done good. But in the context of this hadith, what does Ihsan mean? The Prophet ﷺ explains it himself. Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though you see him. And if you do not see him, then he sees you. Now, allow me to explain the latter part of the sentence first. If you do not see him. This is actually an explanation to the first part of the sentence. First of all, no one can see Allah in this world. We cannot see Allah in this world. The vision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reserved for the mu'minun in the hereafter. In the world, no one can see Allah. So the meaning of seeing Allah, of observing Allah, is metaphorical. It's with the eyes of the heart rather than the eyes of the head. And in this sentence, the latter part comes first. That's the inferior grade. And the superior grade is the first part of the sentence. So what's the inferior grade of this third degree? The inferior grade is to worship Allah. And ibadah doesn't just mean worship, it means to serve Allah. To serve Allah, to live one's life with the knowledge and with the conviction that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees the person at all times. Now mentally we know that. But Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Imam Bazaar rahmatullahi relates a hadith in which the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, what is the nurturing of one's soul? What is the tazkiyah? What is a man's tazkiyah of his nafs? What is a man's purification of his nafs? What is the man's nurturing of his soul? So the Prophet ﷺ said, the nurturing of his soul is that he comes to know that Allah is with him wherever he is. That Allah is with him. And in another hadith related by Ubadat al-Samit radiyallahu related by Imam Tabarani, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says the best of faith afdalul iman the best of faith is that you know that Allah is with you wherever you are that 
consciousness, that constant awareness of Allah's being with a person. As Allah says, And He is with you wherever you are. He says in the Quran, He is with you wherever you are. He is with them wherever they are. Indeed, Allah is with those who have taqwa and Allah is with those who are muhsinun, those who have ihsan. That ma'iyah, that closeness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that company of Allah azza wa jal, that togetherness of Allah azza wa jal, that is something truly unique. But we should not misunderstand any of these phrases. We should not regard that as Allah being merged with his creation. Allah is distinct from his creation. Allah is distinct from any part of his creation. Not just his subjects, not just his servants. Not just the people of creation, but anything of creation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is distinct from his creation. So how do we understand that ma'iyah? How do we understand that togetherness? That Allah being with his creation, how do we understand it? Like we understand... The other descriptions of Allah We believe how Allah has described himself. And we accept how Allah has described himself. So if Allah says he is with you, then his being with us is in a manner that befits his majesty. We accept it as it is. His ma'iyah is something that we accept. Ma'iyah meaning his togetherness, his being with his creation, we accept as it is, as befits his majesty, as befits him. So the second part of the sentence, the inferior part, well, I wouldn't say inferior, the second part of the sentence is the lesser degree. The first part of the sentence is a higher degree. The lesser degree is that we live our lives, we worship Allah, we serve Allah with the knowledge and with the conviction that he sees us. Now imagine if someone was to, was to develop that awareness and that consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time. We behave at traffic lights. We behave at traffic lights. We are fearful of parking on two yellow lines because we will get a parking ticket. We're fearful of the red lights. Simply because we don't want points in our license or a fine. Or our insurance to be bumped up. If there's a camera normal people behave. I say normal people because subhanAllah there are some who are aware of the camera and yet they still make idiots of themselves. So even in the presence of a security camera, normal people behave. 
behave in the sense that even if their nafs tells them to do something, that their awareness, their realization, their consciousness, that they are being watched, prevents them from carrying out criminal activity. And sometimes it's not even to do with crime. It's about how we are perceived. We want people to love us. We want people to think good of us. We want people to like us. We want people to have a good opinion of us. And that desire just to have Others think well of us, to perceive us well. That desire leads us to changing, altering, consciously altering our behavior in their presence. For no financial reward, for no monetary physical reward, the only reward is something very removed. We change our behavior in the hope that we think that they will think better of us. So we try to second-guess them, and in our second-guessing them, in trying to read their minds, and merely hoping that they will think good of us, and not that we will ever know, but merely in the forlorn hope that they will think good of us, we actually change our behaviour. We conduct ourselves differently. And not just as adults, even children. In fact, in research, in studies, they've seen that, forget three, four-year-old infants, newborn babies. They've monitored newborn babies, and newborn babies cry when they know that there is someone in the vicinity in the hope that they will be given attention. Once they actually come to realize that there's no one around, they stop. And not because they're tired of wailing and crying, but even newborn babies have this awareness and consciousness that there isn't anyone around. The moment they know someone is around, in order to attract attention, they will wail and weep. And these are newborn babies. So, and even infants, Three-year-old children will consciously change their behavior if they know someone is watching. We do it as adults as well. In fact, we do it in ibadah. So our salah undergoes a change. Of course, every one of us. The way we pray at home, in the privacy of our bedroom, when no one is watching, in fact, for many people, the wife's salah undergoes a change when the husband's watching, and vice versa. The husband's salah undergoes a change when the wife is watching. And this is why the ulama say that you will never be sincere, you will never attain sincerity in your salah until it makes no difference whether you are praying next to a human being or an animal. I.e., if you are praying next to a lamb, is there any conscious change in your salah? No. 
But if there is a human being, then there is a conscious change. Because we're always worried about what someone will think of us. That's all we're worried about. What will their perception be? So in the hope of someone thinking better of us, we actually change our behaviour. And vice versa. Sometimes something is good for our health. Something is good for our safety. Something is good. It's cold outside. You need to wear a certain type of clothing in order to protect you from the cold and help you avoid falling ill. But, if it looks stupid, you're more worried about what people will think than your own health. We do this all the time. We're actually more conscious conscious of what people will think of us than our own health. So we may be willing to endanger our lives. We may be willing to prolong our illness or accept a new illness. We may be willing to risk limb and life rather than have people think differently of us. Something which we will never know. Total strangers. What difference does it make someone walking along and they look at you? If they think... That guy looks smart. They think that guy looks smart and they carry on. That's it. You'll never see them again. You'll never cross paths again. What good does that do to you? You still don't know what they are thinking. You won't know. And even if you address stupidly, not stupidly, but you address prudently, others may think it's unfashionable. Someone walks past and looks at him and thinks, what an idiot. So what? They'll go their way. You'll never see them again. We do it in virtually everything. We do it in ibadah, we do it in clothing, we do it in our dress, in our fashion sense. What's fashion? Fashion is all about, it's all about impressing others. Having others think good of us. We are so worried about other people's perception of us. Now, I've elaborated on this because imagine if we were to have a share of such consciousness with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That we were to think that Allah is watching us. We were to feel that, what will Allah think of me? If I do this, what will Allah think of me? What will Allah say about me? Do I want the creation to think good of me? Or do I want the creator to think good of me? Allah's love is everything. Human love is transient. It comes, it goes. It changes into hate. It rises and falls. It fluctuates. Because how many people truly love us? We are objects. To be exploited, to be used, to be abused, to be, to be made a means to further other people's ends. As I explained in my talk recently about true love, when people talk about love, they're talking about filling a void in themselves. And we, you, and I, and others, every one of us, every human being, is a means of that void being filled.
And if they feel that it's not being filled, if they feel that you're not doing the job of making them feel better, you're dismissed. <coughs> Why would we want to risk everything for human love when Allah's love is everything? And when we speak about the consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I said this is a lesser degree. Imagine if we were to create that awareness and consciousness, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would reward us, not just reward us, how protected and preserved we would be. <coughs> if a camera can prevent us from committing a crime, if people's glances at us and their gaze on us forces us to modify our behaviour for the better imagine if we were to create that constant awareness and consciousness in us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching us, he is with us wherever we are imagine how we would behave, how we would conduct ourselves, that's what taqwa is ultimately, that's what taqwa is taqwa isn't just the fear of Allah, fear of Allah is a small part of taqwa. taqwa in fact in one narration of this hadith the wording is ihsan is that you worship Allah, you serve Allah, you fear Allah as though you see that's what taqwa is, taqwa isn't just the fear of Allah, it's the Constant awareness of Allah, the wariness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's a lesser degree. So you have Islam, then you have Iman, which is a much higher grade, much more difficult. And then well above Iman, you have Ihsan. And Ihsan itself has two grades. The lesser grade is that you are aware and conscious that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala watches you, observes you, is with you. What's a higher grade? If someone can achieve the lesser grade, then inshallah, they may be able to progress to the highest grade. And what's the highest grade? Of all of these ranks, it's the first part of the sentence. That you worship Allah as though you see him. Now, physically, we can't see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the dunya. We can't see Allah with the eyes of our head. But this is a metaphorical vision in that we see Allah, we observe Allah with the sight of our hearts. With our basira rather than our basar. Not with the sight of the mind and the sight of the eyes, but rather with the sight and the perception of the heart. And this is a rank known as a rank of mushahada, where a person is observant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again, not physically. This is a very, because this is the highest grade, it's something so lofty, so spiritual, it's grossly misunderstood. Grossly misunderstood. And it's very sensitive, very delicate. It's difficult for me to explain. It's difficult for people to understand and to perceive. But there's one beautiful hadith which can describe it. And there are other hadith as well, but one of the hadith that can describe this rank is one related by Imam Bukhari. This is a rather unique hadith. 
in that of all the famous books of hadith, none of the other books contain this hadith. Imam Muslim, Imam Tirmidhi, Imam Nasi, Imam Abu Dawood, Imam Ibn Majah, Imam Malik in his Muatla, none of them have this hadith. Even Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, with his Musnad, which is which contains over 27,000 hadith. Even his Musnad does not contain this hadith. Only Imam Bukhari has it. And some ulama went to the extent of saying that this hadith is a very strange one. It's difficult to accept. We're not talking about contemporary ulama, uh, the classical ulama. And they would then add the words, لَوْلَا هَيْبَةُ الصَّحِيحِ if it wasn't for the awe of Sahih al-Bukhari, if it wasn't for the awe of Sahih al-Bukhari, it would be difficult to accept this hadith. This is what some of the classical ulama said. And what is that hadith? Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa relates from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who says, مَنْ عَادَ لِي وَلِيًّا فَقَدْ آذَنْتُهُ بِالْحَرُبِ Whoever makes an enemy of a friend of mine, then I shall declare war on him. And never has a servant come close to me, as close as he does, by fulfilling the obligations which I have placed on him. And a servant of mine continues to draw closer to me through nawafil, through optional deeds, until hatta uhibba. But this doesn't just mean, oh, he prays a few farad, and he prays a few nafl, no. Meaning he fulfills all of the obligations that Allah has imposed on him. And then having fulfilled all of the obligations, what else does he do? He continues to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through nafl, through optional deeds. And having perfected his fara'id and completed his nawafil, having fulfilled all his obligations towards Allah, not just obligatory prayers, and having completed so many nawafil and fulfilled so many optional deeds, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? And my servant continues to draw closer to me with optional deeds until hatta uhibba, until I love him, until I come to love him. Then, فَإِذَا أَحْبَبْتُهُ Then when I do love him, كُنْتُ سَمْعَهُ الَّذِي يَسْمَعُ بِهِ وَبَصَرَهُ الَّذِي يُبْصِرُ بِهِ وَيَدَهُ الَّتِي يَبْتَشُ بِهَا وَرِجْلَهُ الَّتِي يَمْشِي بِهَا Until he, I love him. And then when I love him, I become his ears with which he hears. Sorry, I become his hearing with which he hears. And I become his sight with which he sees. And I become his hand with which he grasps and touches. And I become his feet with which he walks. 
And if he asks of me, I surely do give him. And if he seeks refuge in me and protection of me, my protection, then I surely do give him refuge and protection. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And never, in the, he continues in the hadith, never do I hesitate in doing something which I do as much as I hesitate in claiming the soul of a mu'min. For he dislikes death and I dislike hurting him. That's a hadith. But see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that I become his ears with which he, his, his hearing with which he hears, his sight with which he sees, his hands with which he grasps and touches, his feet with which he walks. If he asks of me, I surely do give him. If he seeks refuge in me, I surely give him refuge. And in another hadith, again related by Imam Bukhari and others, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says ana inda dhanni 'abdi bi wa ana ma'ahu idha dhakarani fa in dhakarani dhakartuhu fi nafsi wa in dhakarani fi mala'in dhakartuhu fi mala'in khayrin minhum wa in taqarraba ilayya bi shibrin taqarrabtu ilayhi dhira'a wa in taqarraba ilayya dhira'an taqarrabtu ilayhi ba'a wa in atani yamshi ataytuhu harwalatan aw kama qala sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Allah says I am with my servant as he thinks of me. And I am with him when he remembers me. So if he remembers me in his heart, I remember him in my soul. And if he remembers me in a gathering, I remember him in a gathering far better than their gathering. And if he comes close to me by a span, I come closer to him by a cubit. And if he comes closer to me by a cubit, I come closer to him by two, four, by two arms length. And if he comes closer to me, and if he comes to me walking, I go to him running. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's closeness with his servant, that's a lesser degree, but a person worshipping Allah, serving Allah with the rank of mushahada, whereby he is constantly observant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, seeing of Allah, perceiving of Allah, witnessing Allah. That rank of mushahada is known as the rank of witnessing. Of witnessing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the sight of his heart, with his perception, not the sight of his eyes. This is to some degree described by these hadith. Where Allah, these are authentic hadith. The second hadith is related by both Imam Bukhari and Muslim. The first one, as I explained, is only by Imam Bukhari. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with him. He becomes his sight, his hearing, his hands, his feet. What does all of this mean? It means that the person walks in the light of Allah, with the nur of Allah. A person sees with the nur of Allah. Every utterance... Every deed, every movement is with the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is a unique degree. 
The person is conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times. The person's heart is filled with the love of Allah. Mind is filled with the awe of Allah. And the person is in a constant, continuous, close relationship with Allah. That is a unique rank of Ihsan which very few people actually achieve. And the first is Islam, apparent submission, then Iman, inner faith, then Ihsan. And Ihsan has a lesser degree, which is to know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala observes you, watches you, is with you. And then the highest rank is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you worship and serve Allah, you fear Allah as though you see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jibreel alayhi salam, having heard this explanation, then said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, tell me about the final hour, are you of judgment? Inshallah, I'll continue with the remainder of the hadith in another session, because there's quite a fair bit of the hadith left, and I don't, I wish to do justice to it rather than rush it. So... Inshallah, next time. Not next week, because we have another talk, I believe, next week. But uh, in one of the upcoming weeks, I'll conclude the hadith. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who do attain these ranks of Islam and Iman and Ihsan. May Allah give us that great rank of mushahada spoken of in this hadith. وصلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك